0: Well, good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. If you have a Bible, we will be in Psalm 2, as Mike just uh, just read. And uh, so typically here at Parkway, we just kind of preach through books of the Bible. That's not how we're doing it here in uh, Psalms. That's not necessarily have to, how you have to read the book of Psalms. You can kind of jump around, and that's what we're doing, because if we were to preach through the entire book of Psalms, it would take us like a decade. Psalm 119 would probably take like three years. And so uh, we're just going to take a few different Psalms over the next few months, and then uh, starting next year, we will be in 1 Corinthians. But today, we will be in Psalm 2, and as you are turning there, I want to tell you a little bit about my first job. When I was uh, 16, I wanted a car, and so my parents said, if I paid for it, I could have one. And, uh, And so I needed a job, and so I decided to do something that I thought would be a great job for me, that is to be a soccer referee. And so I grew up playing soccer. I played for about 10 years. Not that I was that good, but I really enjoyed soccer. And so I thought being a referee would be uh, very similar to playing soccer. And so I thought, basically, I just get to play soccer, but now I have all of the power and authority. And so I love soccer, and I love power and authority, and so I thought, this is the perfect gig for me. And I ended up, uh, I took all the classes, did all the training, I bought a a sweet, uh, you know, uniform that they wear, I had multiple whistles, one for my finger and one for my neck, and uh, did all of the training, got uh, accredited, and started to ref. And I didn't even ref an entire season. I did about five games uh, or so. In fact, I didn't ever even get paid for doing those five games because they didn't have the internet back then. And so you had to mail in forms. Some of you kids don't even know what mail is, but we had to mail in the forms and I was way too lazy to do that. And so I just never even got paid for doing those uh, five games. But my first game uh, of refing, I realized, I don't think this is actually for me. I was doing, uh, I was refing a five-year-old girl's uh, soccer game, and you might think that's the easiest thing to ref. It is not. I mean, no offense at all, but five-year-old girl's soccer isn't really soccer. Every single, by the way, five-year-old boy's soccer is also not soccer. That's not a gender thing, Uh, but every single uh, play, there is a penalty, so I just have to arbitrarily decide when I'm going to call a penalty and when I'm not. Because if I just call a penalty all the time, we're going to be here for 10 to 15 hours and I get paid by the game and not by the hour. Actually, I didn't pay for either because I didn't turn in my stuff, but you get the point. And so I figured at some point the kids need to eat oranges and drink Capri Sun and we need to go home. And so I just kind of choose what I'm going to call and what I'm not going to call. And uh, the parents did not like that approach. Uh, no matter who I called something for, everyone always assumed their, par- their kid is getting a, uh, a, a bad shake. And so the parents are yelling at me. And one dad in particular, he must have thought, just he was confused and he thought, this is the World Cup. And his daughter is on the, uh, the, the, the women's national team. And so as all of the other parents were yelling, he was yelling, but he was actually screaming at me. And, uh, and he was cursing at me. And, uh, and so here I am. I'm a kid myself. I'm, I, I'm just turned 16. I might have really just been 15 at this point, but uh, I'm a kid, and this 40-year-old man is screaming at me, and he starts to threaten me, like he's going to hurt me for doing this. So now I, I, I'm figuring, trying to th- figure out, what do I do? And so I punched him. No, I didn't do that. Uh, and so uh, thankfully... The uh, head ref of the entire league was there because it was my first game and so he was watching. And so he came uh, over and he stepped in and he actually gave that dad a red card. If you didn't know that uh, participants can actually get red cards. And so he got kicked off of the premises, which just made him more mad at me. But at least that other ref was there. And that kind of reminds me of uh, the psalm that we're looking at today. It was my first day on the job. And all of these people are screaming at me and somebody comes to my defense and helps me. And that's what we see in uh, the psalm uh, this morning. Psalm two is what's called a coronation psalm. When the king of Israel is coronated, which doesn't sound like a real word, but it is. It sounds like something that whenever you get corona, you get coronated. Uh, but whenever you, the, the king of Israel was crowned, uh, whenever he ascends the throne, assumes the throne, then uh, they would recite this, kind of like whenever uh, the president uh, takes the oath of office or something like this, and they would recite this, uh, this particular uh, psalm. And uh, and so in the psalm, we'll see this this imagery of these surrounding nations that are all raging like that dad. And then the the Davidic king is not alone. Instead, he has another who is in authority, and that other in authority comes to his defense as the head ref had come to my defense. And so we'll see, psalm two is going to be broken up into these four different sections. So my sermon is gonna be broken up into four sections as well. That's part of the marks of an expository sermon is that it kind of flows along with the flow of the text. And so each section, you're going to see a different scene. And in each different scene, there's gonna be different characters, but all of these scenes kind of uh, have this theme, this organizing motif of kings and kingdoms. So in verses one through three, we're going to see how the kings of the earth are plotting and raging against God. And then in verses 4 through 6, the attention is going to turn to the divine king who is enthroned in heaven. And then in 7 through 9, the focus is going to turn from the divine king onto the davidic king, the king of Israel who's enthroned on the earth. And then 10 through 12 shifts the attention back to these original kings of the earth but this time it gives them a strong warning. So with that introduction in mind, let's pray, and then we'll dive into Psalm 2 together. I wanna ask you first just to pray for yourself. You might come in, maybe you're fearful, maybe you're distracted, maybe you're hungry, maybe you're angry, whatever it might be, and just pray that the Lord for the next 40 minutes or so would give you uh, undivided uh, attention, And then would you pray that for us collectively? Not only those in this room, but those in the fellowship hall and those in the chapel and even those at home who uh, for whatever reason aren't able to be with us that uh, uh, the Lord would continue to just pour out his favor upon this place. And then lastly, we pray for me for faithfulness and boldness? So Father, we ask this morning that you would do what you say in the Psalms that you do, that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes, that we would behold glorious things in your word. You you unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We pray these things because you're a good father and as a good father, you give good gifts so we ask for your spirit to help us now. In Christ's name, amen. Let's look at uh, Psalm 2 verses uh, one through three. Psalm 2, one through three. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I don't know if you've ever watched a game show where kind of at the beginning of it, they have a section called Let's Meet the Contestants. Well, that's kind of what we see here in scene one of this uh, psalm. We're going to kind of meet the contestants. And all of them, as I mentioned before, have some sort of connection with kingdom imagery. First are the kings and the rulers of the earth. Then we have the Lord. By the way, if you see the word Lord in all capitals in your Bible, that is referring explicitly to Yahweh, the, uh, the Lord God who is uh, the divine king who rules uh, over all things. And then you also have the anointed, which is another way of saying king, uh, the king of Israel, uh, as uh, they would do, there was a custom where they would anoint the king with oils. That's what anointed means, the divine, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Davidic king of, uh, of Israel. Now, unfortunately, these three groups of kings are not all united. Instead, it's a bit of a face-off. So in one corner, you have all of the kings of the earth and all of their peoples, all of the nations. And in the other corner, you have Yahweh, the Lord God, and you have this king of Israel, the anointed one. Now, the divine king, Yahweh, happens to be God and thus he rules over all. He's sovereign, and therefore all people should be submitted to him. But instead, what do we see the people and the nations doing? They're rebelling. What do they say here? They say, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords. In other words, they find God's rule to be constraining. They find it to be constricting, and so they want to be free. They think of God as like a harsh slave master and so they want to break those bonds and they want to be free. They don't want to serve Yahweh. They want to serve themselves. Ultimately they despise God. They despise God's authority. They crave autonomy. That is that they would be their own law. That they would uh, have this self-rule. And so they rage. They assemble. They conspire. They plot they rebel. That's the idea here in uh, Psalm 2. By the way, since this psalm originally functioned as a coronation psalm for the king of Israel, when it speaks of peoples and nations and kings, in that particular context, it means non-Jews. In the immediate context, those who rebel and rage are the Gentile nations. And yet we know from a greater biblical and theological perspective that this rebellion, against God, this rage against God, this conspiring against God isn't merely ethnic or linguistic or racial or uh, biological. In fact, all peoples of every tongue, of every tribe, of every nation, all peoples actually do the same thing. We inherently relate to God in this way. In our flesh, in our sin, we are just like these kings. We conspire, we crave autonomy In other words, this isn't just a picture of some uh, historic uh, perspective of how these ancient kings related to God. It's also, in addition to being a portrait of that, it's also a mirror that we look at ourselves and we see the way that we relate to God, at least in our flesh. At one time, you and I, even if we love Jesus now, at one time, you and I plotted and raged and rebelled. We all naturally long to burst the bonds of God's rule and reign in our flesh, in our sin. Every single one of us craves this same autonomy, this same independence, this same liberty from what we perceive to be the tyrannical rule of God. But I want you to notice something here. Notice the perspective of the psalmist. He sees this commotion going on. He sees this protest, this riot, and he's actually kind of confused. How does it begin? He asks why, why do the nations rage? Their rage is so nonsensical. From the perspective of the psalmist, he sees this this rebellion, this rage is irrational. So why is that? Why is it that he asks this question, why? Why is it that he finds this to be irrational? Well first, because God's rule and reign is good. In fact, it's the very source of good. The nations are essentially saying in their rebellion, I want joy. But how are they going about finding joy? By forsaking the source of joy. This is the essence of what sin is. This is what you and I do every single time that we sin. Sin isn't rational. It isn't logical. It's folly. It's like uh, plunging your head below the water so that you can take a breath. Consider Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13. I think we'll put it up on the screen. Jeremiah two twelve through thirteen. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. Declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out for themselves, uh, hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's the essence of what sin is. It's to forsake joy in the pursuit of joy. It doesn't make sense. Two weeks ago, my uh, family was able to go with a couple of other families uh, to Florida, not COVID central parts of uh, Florida, but uh, the seaside area where they filmed the Truman Show. And, uh, and so while we were there, we, we got to play in the ocean. It was kind of the first exposure of my kids to, uh, to actual uh, ocean. And so uh, we would uh, play in the ocean and we would dig sandcastles and dig these big holes and bury ourselves in them and, and so forth. So we would dig these huge holes but eventually the tide would come in and fill the hole with water. But what happened after about 30 seconds? The hole's completely empty. The water just soaked down into the sand. That's the imagery of Jeremiah 2. There's this ocean of joy that's available for us, but we reject it. We try to dig a hole in the sand to capture a few drops of water. So this rage, this rebellion of the nations against God is nonsensical, first because it's misguided. But not only that, the second reason that this is irrational is that all of this commotion, all of this rage, all of this rebellion is actually useless. Notice before we even get to Yahweh's response, which we'll get to in the next section, we're already clued in by the, the, uh, the psalmist. The people's plot in, what's the next word? The people's plot in vain. And by that I don't just mean arrogant, although it is the height of arrogance, but vain here in this context means Worthless. Empty, useless, futile. The conspiracy is doomed from the start. On the surface, it might look like a lopsided fight. As mentioned before, in one corner, you have all of the nations of the earth, all of the peoples, all of their kings, all of their rulers. The psalmist, in fact, uses all of these plural nouns to kind of demonstrate the size, the overwhelming size, the immensity of this crowd that's protesting the reign and rule of God. In the other corner, you have two individuals. That's it, Yahweh and the Davidic king. So it seems like an unfair fight. You have 100 million or something to two. And it actually is a lopsided fight. It's just not lopsided in favor of the crowd in fact, it's so lopsided that Yahweh is going to laugh at what's going on below. Let's look at the, uh, the next section. Verses four through six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I love this picture here uh, the nations the peoples the kings uh, of the earth are raging they're screaming and meanwhile God is sitting down he didn't st- even stand up he doesn't assume some sort of defensive posture he doesn't need to put up his fists or hold up a shield he has nothing to fear whatsoever the other day i was uh, I was jogging and I was listening to an audiobook, so I had headphones in and so i wasn't really paying attention to all that was going on around me and so uh, uh, suddenly kind of out of my peripheral vision or whatever it is that's kind of your lower vision, I notice there's something moving at my feet, and so I just instinctively jump. I don't know if it's a snake or what, and uh, and I look down, and I notice what looked like an Ewok, but was probably a dog. Uh, the problem was, it kind of looked kind of cute. The problem was it was actually trying to bite me. It was trying to attack me, not just like, you know, yipping or something like that, but it was actually trying uh, to attack me, and so I'm now forced to make this uh, decision. What do I do in this moment? Do I just let this little dog attack me or do I defend myself? And so I kicked it. No, I didn't. I didn't do that either. I chose option C and I just decided I'm going to awkwardly run as fast as I possibly can in a kind of a serpentine motion. And then every time it would actually lunge at me, I would jump as high as I could. On someone's like ring doorbell, there's a video of this. I hope it never shows up because I must have looked like a complete idiot, and uh, and so uh, uh, anyway, here's kind of the, the the deal. I honestly had zero fear that this dog-like creature was going to hurt me, and yet I ran as fast as I could. My heart is pounding. I'm sweating. I look like a complete idiot because I didn't really want to hurt that dog but I also didn't want it to bite me even if it couldn't really hurt me I don't know where that dog's been but here God is and he's not running he's not standing he's not jumping he's sitting in other words he isn't concerned in the least by this rebellion going on in fact it says he laughs he who sits in the heavens laughs not because it's funny it isn't funny it's tragic all is tragic. He isn't laughing because sinful human mutiny is some sort of light and trivial thing, but rather because it's so utterly foolish and futile for man to think that somehow he can disrupt God's plan, for man to think somehow he can interrupt God's sovereignty. And not only does he laugh, but it says he holds the nations in derision. That word derision is elsewhere translated in Scripture as ridicules or Mock. So God is sitting down and he's mocking the nations while they rage. Now, uh, some of you may be surprised by that imagery. Perhaps the idea that God would mock, that God would ridicule, that God would deride these peoples makes you uncomfortable. Yet this imagery permeates the Bible. We talked about it a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago. Elijah faces off against the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament. There are hundreds of false prophets with the full support of the king and queen, Ahab, and everyone's favorite, Jezebel, Jezebel. And they're faced off against one and only one prophet, Elijah. The prophets are screaming, they're yelling, they're cutting themselves to try to get Baal's attention. And meanwhile, what's Elijah's doing? He's mocking them, actually. He says, yell louder. Maybe your God is taking a nippy nap. Maybe your God is in the bathroom. That's literally what he says to them. He's mocking them. And this isn't just something that Elijah does. It's like, he's the mocking prophet, but no one else would dare do that. We see this language throughout the prophetic literature. Amos calls a group of women cows of Bashan. Isaiah ridicules those who worship idols. And it isn't only in the prophets. We see it in the wisdom literature. A nagging wife is compared to a leaking faucet, which is ironic because she's probably nagging about the fact that her husband won't fix the faucet. And lest you think this is just misogynistic, Men are compared to, uh, men who are sluggards are compared to doors on their hinges. Men are called stupid. They're called fools. They're called sluggards. Or God tells Job to put on his big boy pants and stop whining. And then God asks Job 77 straight rhetorical, ridiculing questions. And it isn't just an Old Testament phenomenon. We see it in the New Testament as well. Paul tells those who insist on circumcision to not stop with the foreskin let the listener understand, but to keep cutting themselves. Jesus calls Pharisees whitewashed tombs and sons of Satan. He even calls Peter, whom he loves, Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. So satire and mockery and ridicule permeate the Bible. And yet we live in a context in the 21st century that's kind of been called the cult of niceness, a context in which people think that holiness equals niceness. Any sort of sarcasm, any sort of cutting rebuke or mockery or ridicule is seen as unkind or offensive or mean and ultimately arrogant and ungodly. Am I saying that all mockery is good? Of course not. Am I saying that some is? Yes, I don't know how you cannot say that unless you just discount the Bible. To mock good is evil, but to mock evil is good. So some of you might be uncomfortable with this. You, you, you wrongly and therefore sinfully believe that sarcasm or mockery or ridicule is, uh, are, are always inherently mean and unbecoming. If that's you, you need to consider whether or not you are actually attempting to be more holy than the Bible. And if so, you need to repent of that. You can't be more holy than the Bible. You can't be more holy than Jesus. On the other hand, Some of you might be on the opposite end of the spectrum. And you think the fact that Amos and Isaiah and Jesus and Peter did this, sometimes, mean, you can do it all the time, right? You think you kind of have a license to ridicule whenever you want, however you want. If that's you, you probably need to consider what it means when Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, 24-25, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently during evil correcting his opponents with gentleness god may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth in other words there is a time for mockery there's a time for ridicule but there's also a time for gentleness sometimes ridicule is prophetic But sometimes it's just being mean. And the wise man or the wise woman is able to discern which one is appropriate in each individual context. But here in Psalm 2, the point isn't whether or not you or I can mock, but rather that God in his infinite wisdom and holiness is mocking the vain rebellion before him. So let's put this all together. The nations are raging, but God is sitting down. He's laughing. He's mocking. It's like Simon Cowell an American idol, right? The contestants are going. He's just mocking them as they, uh, they do. And so finally God speaks. And what's the result? It says he will terrify them in his fury. If you think that the rage of the crowd is intense, you haven't seen anything yet. Wait until you see the wrath of God. But the content of his response when he finally speaks is interesting. What does he say? What is God's response to this disorder? This chaos, this rage going on around him. He says, I have set my king on my mountain. In other words, the Davidic king, the king of Israel, is the divine response to the rebellion of the world. The world is in chaos. What's God's response? The Davidic king. So let's turn to the Davidic king in verses seven through nine. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So now we move from the kings of the earth who are speaking in scene one to the divine king who speaks in scene two, to the Davidic King who's speaking here in scene three, although he in his speech he's quoting uh, Yahweh. So let's break up this quotation, this speech of the Davidic King into three sections marked by these three different sentences that you'll see here in verses seven through nine. First, the sentence that begins, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Second, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and so forth. And then third, you shall break them with a rod of iron and so forth. So what's the, the deal with this first reference to sonship? It says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In order to understand that, we need to understand the way that sonship language uh, is used in the Bible, in particular as it relates to being a son of God. When we use the phrase son of God, we can mean various things by that. In fact, biblical authors mean different things in different contexts by use uh, of the, the phrase son of God. I'll give you four different examples, although there are actually uh, more than that. The first example, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is called the son of God. Look at Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, so Israel is called a Son of God. A second usage in the New Testament, believers are called sons of God. Romans eight fourteen for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's the second usage. So Israel, believers, third usage. the second person of the Trinity is called the Son of God. This is what we most often uh, mean by it. if someone just walks up to you and says who is the Son of God, then you would typically respond in this fashion, referring to the second person of the the Trinity. Within the Trinity, we have Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons eternally united in the Godhead. So you see kind of hints of that in 1 John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so that's the third use. But the fourth use... It's perhaps the most foreign to most Christians, and yet ironically, it's actually the most common usage in Scripture, that the phrase son of God is uh, most commonly used in reference to the king of Israel. Remember that Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm that's used when any king who is a son of David ascends to the throne of Israel. So to understand this usage, we need to understand what's called the Davidic Covenant, now, we talked about covenants before. A few years back, we actually did theological equipping. We did, I think, five weeks on covenants where we talked about the, uh, the Adamic covenant. That's the covenant that's made with uh, Adam. The Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the New Covenant. Uh, we did all of these a few years back. So let's talk a little bit about what's called the Davidic covenant, the covenant that's made with uh, David. So in the book of 2 Samuel, after the whole Goliath affair, but before the whole Bathsheba affair, no pun uh, intended, King David wants to build God a, uh, a house. But God says, no, you're not going to build me a house. Instead, I'm going to build you a house. It doesn't mean like a sweet castle or a mansion or something like that. But rather, he means a metaphorical house. In other words, I'm going to raise up your sons. I'm going to raise up your sons, David. And I'm going to count them as if they are my sons. Look at 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... Your throne shall be established forever. So this is the promise, the decree that's mentioned here in Psalm 2. When an offspring of David is crowned as king, then that son of David in a metaphorical figurative sense becomes a son of God. That's part of this Davidic covenant. So on the day that you become king, notice the language of today here in the Psalm, on that day you become a son in fulfillment of this promise to David. The day of your coronation as king of Israel is also the day of your adoption as a son of God in this figurative Davidic covenant sense. And this is really important for us to recognize what's going on here if we want to understand what in the world is happening when this psalm is going to be applied to Jesus as it is throughout the entire New Testament. This is one of the most alluded to and quoted psalms in the entire New Testament. I think Psalm 110 is the only one maybe that is quoted more. In particular, it helps us to understand why does he say today? Today I have begotten you. And that might be confusing to you if you jump immediately to thinking about Jesus and you ask the question Does this mean that Jesus wasn't the Son of God? And then he became the Son of God in a certain day? There's an ancient heresy that's called adoptionism that said just that. Said that Jesus was just a man, uh, but at his birth or at his baptism or at his transfiguration or at his death or something like that, he's adopted by God. And thus in that moment, he becomes divine. So is that what this is saying? Whenever we apply this psalm, to Jesus? No, that's not what it's saying. That's not what this passage or any other passage is actually going to teach. Instead, we need to understand that the second person of the Trinity is eternally begotten of the Father. If we're talking about Jesus in in regards to His divine nature, He is eternally begotten of the Father. In fact, that is what distinguishes the Son from the father. We talked about that quite a bit in uh, in 1 John. We spent an entire uh, year in 1st, 2nd and 3rd John. So go back and listen to that or listen to some of our teachings on Christology and Trinitarianism in uh, theological uh, equipping. But that's not what this passage is about. It's not uh, about it's not using the word son to describe Jesus Christ's eternal relationship with the father, but rather it's using son uh, in reference to his role as the Davidic king. Remember how we mentioned that the phrase son of God is ambiguous. It could refer to Israel or believers or the second person of the Trinity or the Davidic king. And Jesus Christ wears at least two of those hats. He is the second person of the Trinity, but he's also the Davidic king. In regards to his deity, he is eternally begotten as the son of God. The second person of the Trinity is eternally the son of God. God. And yet Jesus becomes in time the Son of God, if we mean by that this Davidic covenant sense. So, when does the king become the Son? We talked about that before. This is a coronation psalm. In the moment of their coronation, they become a king and they become the Son of God in this uh, figurative sort of sense. And this is why, in a number of places, you'll see this psalm reference to Christ. In regards to his resurrection and ascension. Uh, and, and ascension. In other words, at Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he is declared to be the Son of God in this Davidic covenant sense. Look at Acts 13, Acts 13, 33. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. That's a reference to his resurrection. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. When was Jesus begotten in this sense? not in the second person of the Trinity sense, but in the Davidic king sense, at his resurrection. Or Romans 1, 4, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Look at this next phrase, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So this might help you. Uh, Thomas uh, Schreiner, uh, Tom Schreiner, who's a, a, a great uh, New Testament uh, a scholar, theologian, says this, while Jesus was on this earth, He was the Messiah and the Son of God, but his death and resurrection inaugurated a stage in his messianic existence that was not formally his. Now he reigns in heaven as Lord and Christ. So let me summarize again so you don't misunderstand. The second person of the Trinity is eternally begotten of the Father and thus is eternally the Son of God. But in this specific Davidic covenant, Old Testament sense of the phrase Son of God, that term is applied to Jesus Christ particularly when he is resurrected and he ascends to the throne at the right hand of God. What's next? It says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Two things I wanna mention about that. The first one being notice this underlying assumption that sons have certain rights to make requests of God that others do not. My children can ask things of me that others can't, or at least that others shouldn't with the same level of expectation that I'm going to grant their request. For example, when my daughter uh, asks me to tell her a story before she goes to bed, I I typically happily oblige her. But if Jared Lawson calls me at 10 p.m. and says, I can't sleep, Jeff, can you tell me a story? I'm going to mock him, right? And that's prophetic mockery right there in that moment. Children have certain rights and privileges that others don't have when it comes to making requests of their fathers. And so although it's not the point of this particular text, I think it is important for us to recognize as sons and daughters of God, we should have confidence in prayer. But again, that's not the point of this particular uh, passage, which is about Christ and his role as the Davidic king having access to uh, the Father. Now notice the content of this request. Not only would the Davidic king rule over Israel, but also he's going to rule over the nations and the earth. You see this expansion of his kingdom. He's not merely going to be the king of Israel, he's going to be the king over the entire earth. He says, ask of me and I'll give you the nations and the ends of the earth. This is particularly relevant because remember how we began the sermon. What are the nations currently doing? They're raging. They're rebelling. They're conspiring. The very nations who are raging will one day be brought into submission, but not without a fight. Notice the language there. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, which is this prophetic imagery of authority and uh, and power and sovereignty. So the Davidic king is is carrying this rod of iron and the nations are portrayed as a a little fragile piece of pottery. Basically, the nations are like a big pinata and the Davidic king has this Louisville, uh, Louisville slugger and he swings it And he breaks it open. There's this eschatological candy of peace, of shalom for everyone. Let's look at the next, uh, the last section there, verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now up to this point, there's been no command in the psalm. It's all about what the peoples are doing and what God has done, and what he's going to do in response, but now we get to the actual warning. We get to the imperative. In light of this, the kings, and by implication all peoples, should be wise and should be warned. So we see this series of contrasts in this section between what the nations and the peoples have been doing and what they should be doing. In the first section, we saw that they're being foolish. They're doing something that's futile. Here it says... You should be wise. Instead of being foolish, be wise. In the first section, we see that they're trying to cast off the bonds of the Lord. Here we see that they should serve with fear. In the first section, they're trembling in rage. And here they should rejoice with trembling. And then rather than using their mouths to scream their complaints, they should kiss the king as a sign of submission. So there's these contrasts. and There's also these consequences and benefits that accompany this admonition. Here's the consequence if you don't heed this warning. God gets angry and you perish. God is kind of like the Hulk. You wouldn't like him if he's angry. His anger is is good, it's righteous, it's holy, and yet it is terrifying. And for those who do not heed this warning, wrath is the consequence. Make no mistake, God will not be mocked. That's the consequence, but there's also a benefit. There's a blessing that's held out. There's hope, as there are consequences of disobedience, so there, is, there are certain benefits of obedience. It says, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The blessing of shelter, of hope, of life, and joy. And that's Psalm 2 in its original context. So what do we do with it today? Well, as we saw earlier, God's response to this worldwide rebellion is to establish the Davidic dynasty. That might seem like a strange response to this uh, conspiracy, this rage, this rebellion that's going on, and yet it's the hope. The only problem, at least from our perspective, it's a problem, is is that the Davidic dynasty itself is defiled. Rather than being the solution, they're part of the problem. David, with whom the covenant is established, is an adulterer and a murderer. The very next generation, Solomon is an idolater and a womanizer and on and on we could go. We've used this image before. The, the world is lost at sea in a sea of sin and so God sends Israel as the coast guard to go and rescue them and the Davidic king is the captain of the ship. The only problem is that the captain is drunk and the ship itself is lost at sea In other words, Israel and the kings of Israel are themselves part of the problem. So we need another. We need a new and better son of David. We need Jesus, the Christ. By the way, the English word Christ is from the Greek Christos, which is just like the word Messiah, translated as the anointed one. Though all of the Davidic kings are anointed sons in some sense, Jesus is the ultimate son of David. He's the ultimate son of God. He's the ultimate king who has inaugurated the true kingdom. And the kingdom is the overarching, the, oh, the organizing motif of all of Scripture. The story of the Old Testament and the story of the New Testament is the story of the kingdom. In fact, the story of the gospel is the story of the kingdom. As the gospel according to Mark says, Mark 1 the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Notice the parallelism there in Mark. The kingdom of God is the gospel. I want that to be a word association in your mind. When someone says the word gospel, you should think kingdom. When someone says kingdom, you should think gospel. Gospel, kingdom, kingdom, gospel. Those should be associated in your mind. So I want to wrap up this morning, at least begin to wrap up, by reminding us of what the kingdom is and where we find ourselves in that story. In order to do that, we need to rewind from the New Testament all the way back, uh, before Psalms, all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. The beginning of the world is the beginning of the kingdom. And so in Genesis, God creates the world. And in that world, he plants a garden. Now, those familiar with ancient Near Eastern culture and literature, you would already be clued into the fact that this is hinting of kingdom imagery. How so? Because kings in the ancient world would plant gardens. You ever heard of the hanging gardens of Babylon? Babylon. That's something that kings would do in the ancient world. Kings would plant these gardens as a symbol, as a sign of their rule and reign. Look at how I can control the land around me by cultivating these trees and these bushes and these shrubs and these flowers and so forth. This is why anytime I mow the lawn, I instantly come inside and I demand a leg of meat and a chalice of wine because I exercise sovereignty over my land lawn. But back to olden culture, in these gardens, these ancient kings would then take an image, some sort of a monument, an obelisk or something like that, and they would place that in the midst of the garden to symbolize their rule and reign so that when people walked through the garden, they would see the glory of the cultivation of the land and they would ask, what kind of king could possibly do such things? You ever been in a garden where they had like topiaries or like looks like a dinosaur, the, you know, and you think that's crazy. That's incredible. I can't believe somebody was able to uh, do that. I can't even make my shrubs flat, and they're able to uh, to do that. And so that's kind of the idea. What kind of king is able to do that? And then you'd look over and you'd see this monument, and it would have a picture of Nebuchadnezzar, and you think, oh, Nebuchadnezzar is the king here. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who is glorious enough to be able to do that. So God in Genesis plants a garden. And in that garden, he places an image. Now, not a monument, not an obelisk, not an idol, but mankind who's made in the image of God so that when someone sees a fellow man or woman made in the image of God, they would be reminded that Yahweh rules here. If you were to look around the room right now, that is demonstration of the reality that Yahweh reigns. Every time you see another person, that's a reminder of Yahweh's rule and reign, of his sovereignty. Everyone you see is made in the image of God, but then something tragic happens there in the garden. An enemy enters the kingdom and tempts the man and woman to rebel against the true king. And thus sin enters into the kingdom. And with it, there is all of these fractures that take place. Man is divided from his spouse, man is divided from creation, no longer does it yield its fruit uh, easily. Uh, Man is divided from fellow man, there is this uh, war and uh, enmity that takes place and man ultimately is separated from God and so with it there's disease, there's disorder, there's division, there's murder, there's hatred, there's bitterness, there's pride, there's death. There's also a promise embedded in the midst of the curse, a promise of a future son who would defeat the enemy of the kingdom and usher in peace. So now fast forward all the way to the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Look at the language that's used of him, Matthew 4, 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, notice that phrase, the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. We've mentioned this before, but what Jesus is doing there is he's not David Blaine doing Galilean street magic or something like that. What is he doing? He's demonstrating a foretaste of the kingdom by showing how he has authority over every enemy of that kingdom. Demons are enemies of the kingdom. So Jesus demonstrates authority over demons by casting them out. Disease is an enemy of the kingdom. So Jesus shows authority over disease by healing people, healing people. Sin is an enemy of the kingdom. So Jesus shows that he has authority to forgive sin. Natural disasters are consequences of this fractured kingdom. So he shows he has authority over the wind and rain and hunger and thirst and death is an enemy of the kingdom and so Jesus even conquers death itself. In other words, every last enemy is being submitted to the authority of the final and true Davidic king, the son of God. And one day, this kingdom, which has already been inaugurated in the work of Christ, will be consummated as King Jesus will return And the promise of Psalm 2, and indeed the entire Bible, will be fully fulfilled. And so as the Psalm held out these two images, blessing for those who submit to the Messianic King and condemnation for those who don't, so at the return of Christ we see similar imagery, and I want to end with this. First, the image of those who don't submit, those who continue to rage and rebel. Look at Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. That should be familiar language. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As Psalm 2 says, kiss the Son, submit to the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And then there's not only this consequence but also a promise a promise for those who do repent, for those who do believe, for those who do submit to King Jesus. If you just turn a couple of pa- uh, chapters after Revelation 19, you will read about a new heavens and a new earth with no tears, no crying, no pain, nor death. And look at verses 22 through 26. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple was the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations in other words there is coming a day when the promise of psalm 2 will be fulfilled and no longer will the nations and the kings rage and rebel but the ends of the earth will be given to king Jesus the true and better son of god And all that's sad will be untrue. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this psalm. I thank you for uh, this picture of uh, your sovereignty and your rule and your reign and your kingdom and the glory of uh, the the Davidic dynasty, a glory that is uh, obscured in the Old Testament uh, by the sin of sinful men but that uh, shines brilliantly when we look at it through the prism of the uh, life of your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Lord, for all of us in this room that we might kiss the son, that we might submit our lives fully to him, that we might recognize that we too are like these nations who rage and rebel, but that you might give us grace to repent. We pray these things because you're good and we trust that there is refuge and blessing for those who submit to you. And so we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.